Hey there, you're listening to an assignment with Anelia, my place of purpose, where I meet people, pursuits, and passions worth talking about, where storytelling is as imperfect as life, and where no editing is allowed. The next episode follows. And welcome to an assignment with Anelia, the podcast that talks about people, purpose, and places that we all travel to. Today I have Brian Sink and his daughter Matea. Welcome to both of you. Thank Hi. You. It is a wonderful opportunity for me to talk to um, someone I consider to be a Renaissance man and his daughter. Uh, you are about 12 years old, right? Yeah, turned 13 in August, yeah. It, okay. So the reason for um, for our conversation here today is about is your journey. Uh, most recently, Brian, you have uh, published a book, but I think of you as a Renaissance man. You create things. You create things with your soul, with your hands, with your mind. A lot of creation has happened in the past 62 years on your front. Give us a, a, a short version of who Brian Sink is. Well, I've, I've always believed uh, that life is a creative process and it doesn't really matter whether you're doing art or writing, uh, cooking, um, living, it doesn't matter. It's all in an artistic endeavor. So it's all a, a pursuit of some hidden beauty, some thing that no one else sees. It's uh, uh, sussing out secrets, uh, things that, that are below the surface uh, and celebrating those. And uh, my whole life has been lived that way. Uh, sometimes less than successfully, but my whole life has been lived that way. And that's what I love about you. You are uh, a complex man, and, and, and your journey has been far from a straightforward one. It has had its detours, right? Yeah, I mean, you yes. as a daughter, what do you yeah. think? Um, I think my father is, I think he is definitely really creative, and I think He's, he's has some pretty interesting life experiences to lead into his creativity and his music and his art. But yeah, I think he really strives for being as creative as possible in every single situation he comes through. When you, when you introduce your father to your, to your peers, uh, to your friends, to your teachers, what do you say? Um, I, I think they're really interested by his how many things he can do and how many things and how much he's like me usually like all my friends are like oh my god he's so so the podcast we were briefly interrupted by what is inevitably uh, <laughs> Iowa's fate right yeah. right before the caucuses people are calling and, and knocking on the door and, and in this case they there was a phone call to, to my phone number presumably from a caucus um, uh, advocate or some sort of volunteer. In any case, we're talking about your father, and yes. you're saying he's very much like you. Isn't it the other way around? Yeah, I feel like I feel like um, I feel like we're both like each other. Like I feel like I've shown him some things that like I'm like him in some ways, and he's like me. Um, which I mean, I know it seems kind of weird because he's obviously before my time, but uh, <laughs> <laughs> I feel like it kind of goes both ways a little bit. And, and, and for the last 12 years, you have journeyed together, right? You have been with him. You, yeah. You're saying he's before your time, but really, yeah. you are now moving in the same direction together. Yeah. Except his pace is much faster than yours. <laughs> yeah. Right? Yeah. What do you most admire about your father? Um, definitely his creativity, one thing. And he's really caring. Like, I think he, I think he tries um, to, 
to help everybody. I think he tries to, like, no matter if, like, somebody's being really mean to him, he's going to be as nice as possible until he just has to be a little ruder or something, or he always tries to be as nice as possible all the time. Um, so, so you keep saying creativity. Let's yeah. just let's just slice it a little bit here yeah. using a, a, a term, a chef-like term. Let's just slice uh-huh. it into pieces. Um, which part of, when we say creativity, which part of his creativity do you admire the most? He, he does all kinds of yeah. amazing things. Uh, definitely his music, mainly because I play bass. He's teaching me some stuff um, with some of the music. I think that's one of the main things because I, he kind of helps me with it too. Um, well, you know, I just thought of a good example. Tell them about <laughs> your, uh, your uh, cage, your condo for your Oh yeah, so I have four guinea pigs. They're all girls. Hopefully, um, and we a couple months ago in August we had made this humongous condo cage. Uh, like there's like three stories, right? Yeah. And but first, a, but first yeah. we had to draw and paint a backdrop. Yeah. yeah, we did. So it has a mural in the back, uh-huh. and uh, we cannibalized existing cages and pieces and things mm-hmm. to make it with. Mm-hmm. We designed it on paper together. You drew the plans, <laughs> and we followed the plans pretty carefully. But we yeah. couldn't just put the guinea pigs in a cage, we had to build them an entire uh, ecosystem <laughs> in the face. Yeah. Sp- speaking, so. of, speaking of ecosystems, I am here in, in your territory. Um, this is your house in Cedar Falls, Iowa. And of course, some people say their house is their castle, some people say it's their man cave, some people say it's their shelter away from the world, it's their lair. What is the space for you? I'm glad you asked that question. It's a really relative question. Uh, we moved back home uh, seven, almost eight years ago. Yeah. Is that correct? Eight years ago. Yeah. Um, with the intentions of helping take care of my mother, who was very ill. Uh, she had COPD, and uh, she was destined to pass away in just a few years. Um, we wanted her not to live in a nursing home, so we found this house and rented it in the beginning. And my mom was able to live here with us for uh, some time uh, before she went into hospice. So this house became home, um, and the last home that I had was our childhood home here in Iowa, in Cedar Falls. Uh, but that house was torn down for the bypass uh, many, many years ago. So we have been without a spiritual anchor home all that time. And now this house has become that place. Uh, so this house is everything to us. I went to school directly across the street at Lincoln. She goes to Lincoln yeah. School. I went to Holmes Junior High. She'll be attending Holmes Junior High. And there is a, uh, a connection to all that. Um, she plays on the same streets that I do. She's she's. Uh, but she's going to be sneaking off to the UNI campus and playing in the in the student in the mocker union when she's not supposed to be, just like I did. So uh, there's a uh, uh, consubstantiality, a sameness, a, 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 a direct connection that I like very much. And this house is the place where that magic starts. If you had, if you could have written it that way in a book or in a song, where would you have? placed yourself? I'd, I'd, I'd been uh, above it all looking down and, and uh, seeing it. Uh, so that would be my uh, that would be my frame of reference is from above looking 
looking down at it, uh, as opposed to being steeped in it and inside of it. Uh, I tend to examine things from a distance. Uh, even in my book, uh, it gets funnier. Um, that, every, that's the name of the book. It gets, it gets funnier, funnier, right? Every everything I, I I write about, I write about from uh, my perspective in in first person. But I write about it as though a it were the lyric of a song because all of the all of the uh, the elements of my writing voice are very lyrical because I wrote song lyrics long before I wrote a book, so it's very lyrical. It's not rhymy. It just has a lyrical short sentence kind of uh, uh, a structure. Um, but I tend to look at life that way. I tend to look at everything in these in these small digestible bites and uh, and examine those in a lyrical way. So it's it's very good to step back to write that lyric. Not not to get too deep into this into into these parallels we are trying to draw with with your the art of your, of your creation of, of cooking, right? Being a chef, but those bites can sometimes be healthy, sometimes they can be a little bitter. Mm -hmm. Let's just talk about the bitterness of life a little bit. Well, I chose to focus in the book on illuminating uh, and examining the less pretty side of my life. Um, the, the part of the person's existence that is uh, attractive, uh, they all tend to look a lot alike. The, 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 the pretty part of our lives are not very different. Uh, I use Facebook as an example. Everyone has this idyllic Facebook life where they, uh, on, uh, on Facebook, they, they go to the coolest places and they eat the neatest food and, and they're, they're uh, you know, scantily clad by the ocean uh, in the middle of the winter. And, and the relationships and are perfect. Their relationships are perfect. And, and we see that and we, and we take that in and we enjoy it. And vicariously, I think we, we live through those vignettes on Facebook uh, and enjoy that very much. My intention was to uh, make you uncomfortable as you read the book and make you say, boy, am I glad that's not me, uh, as opposed to glamorizing the parts of my life that worked. I have those. There are parts of my life that worked out fine. There are things that I've done that were uh, elegant and and had some uh, some value to them. I didn't write about those. I wrote about uh, you know falling down. I wrote about uh, sometimes not being able to get up right away. I wrote about uh, the the cloud without the silver lining a lot, uh, and it was very intentional and it was very cathartic. And in the end, I had an inventory taken of the wrong turns. The, it, it, it's wonderful to be on a road trip and find your way. It's much more memorable to find yourself lost in downtown St. Louis on the way somewhere and be in the, the wrong neighborhood at the wrong time and have to figure out how to take care of yourself and get into the right spot. That struggle 
is an everyday thing for people, but we minimize it. And we, we take pictures on Facebook then of the destination. I arrive safely, everything's perfect. But we tend not to talk about the errors that we make and the wrong turns. And my book, uh, from page one, is about struggle. Let's talk a little bit about the, the, the phases of that struggle, of your very interesting life. Go. So, um, do, 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 uh, do you want to go right deep into where you hit rock bottom sure, and then just sure. try to climb well, up a little so bit? So the first chapter, page one, is rock bottom. Yeah. Uh, the first chapter, page one, I find my father, um, um, who I believe has committed suicide in our barn, um, he is still suspended from a rope in the rafters of our of our barn. Uh, the first two or three pages deal with that, and that's it. I revisit it a couple of times, but the first two th two or three pages are really a poem uh, depicting, uh, describing the sights, the sounds, the smells all the sensations wrapped up in that. Very little of the emotion. Mostly that me looking at a distance at myself in this moment. Everything in the book tends to uh, then compare itself to that moment. Is it better than that? Is it worse than that? Nothing got much worse, but there were some things. Uh, I left home when I was 13 years old. Not, not very much older than Not yeah, very much older than my yeah. daughter is now. Yeah. Yeah. I got a girl pregnant when I was 15 years old. I went in the Army when I was 17 years old. I was the youngest sergeant in the United States Army for a short time, uh, just because I got promoted really quickly in the Army. When I left the Army, I decided I wanted to be a musician, but uh, first I had to learn to play music and did that. I traveled as a musician, but I wasn't very good at it. I was, I was uh, not on the level of the people who I was playing with. So I was setting myself up for disappointment and possible failure, and eventually uh, the people who I played with became famous people, uh, and I did not. And that's a theme that repeats itself often through the book. In the food and beverage industry, some of the people who I worked with in the restaurant industry went on to become uh, very famous uh, owners of incredibly exotic uh, locations and incredibly important businesses. One of the people that I worked with was a guy named Jerry Inzarello. And Jerry was the manager of the Four Seasons at Las Colinas in Dallas, Texas when I was there. He had been, prior to that, he had been one of the owners of Club 54, uh, Studio 54 in New York. Um, not one of the famous ones, but he was on paper and, in fact, one of the owners. He went on to become the hospitality director for the Crown Prince of Saudi Arabia, and that's the job that he does to this day. So would you, would, let me ask you this, though, uh, because the issue you're raising is, is of great significance to me as a writer and as a journalist. Does, does the achieving of, fate, of fame does that really make a life more meaningful? No, uh, and, and another great question, uh, you know, we're, we've already, we're 15 minutes into this, we've already uh, stumbled onto the meaning of life. So let's talk about that for a minute. 
the uh, uh, there's a James Taylor song that has a beautiful lyric, and the lyric is, the secret of life is enjoying the passage of time. It's very uh, onion-like, and it has many, many layers of meaning. The secret of life is enjoying the passage of time. But very few of us actually take the time to do that. Most of us are focused Absolutely onto, the, onto the destination. Absolutely correct. And, and I was listening to you talk about your own journey in you're setting yourself up for failure and you're not as good as, as, as your musician friends or the food and beverage industry. To me, you are, what you've experienced is, is deeply meaningful and, and, and deeply um, human. Mm-hmm. Very much, very much the human condition. Yeah. Much more so than, than perhaps some people who have been propelled to, to fame. But. It's, it's, it, you would have to agree that it's probably much easier to be unfulfilled in a Mercedes-Benz than to be unfulfilled in uh, a Chevette. So, there, you know, there are, there are certain levels of comfort that you can achieve with money that may make our human, uh, that, that may make the, the human uh, experience a bit more palatable. It, it could be. I, I don't know the I, answer. I don't know. Have you, have you, have you been in a Corvette? No, only once. Okay, <laughs> okay. So, so really, you know, this is your 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 imagination, imagining the Corvette, and, and the daily the, the life that you live. I, I think we all do. We all measure ourselves in in one way or another to other people. But I found you to be a fascinating person, um, and and now that we're having this conversation in front of your daughter, it makes it even more fascinating because clearly, there are no secrets that you oh, no, no, oh, no. Yeah, no, no. that that no, you no, have from no. your daughter. What um, have you read the, your father's book? I um, I wrote a couple essays about it at school actually. Um, I wrote a couple character essays about my dad. A couple um, structure essays about how the how how he kind of makes it. So I've kind of looked over it a couple times. Yeah. She says it makes it uncomfortable. Her make, makes it uncomfortable to read from you know the the more uh, uh, dark portions of the book. They make her uncomfortable. She's not ready to read them yet. She'll read them when she's ready. Mm, yeah, right, right. And let's talk about the restaurant you had in in Waterloo mm-hmm. on Fourth Street. It was just a. I thought this was a cultural center. It wasn't just a place where you go eat nice food. Yeah, there was a lot going on, uh, and 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 there were th- elements of uh, Brian's on Fourth uh, that I think attracted many different kinds of people. We had live music downstairs every night of the week. We were the only place uh, in, in the valley, right, right. That, that had live music all of mm-hmm. the time. Uh, and the, the food was exceptional, the service was exceptional. We had absolutely wonderful staff and an incredible, uh, an incredible following. Um, uh, the, the problem is uh, it's very hard to deny that uh, typical free uh, brick and mortar restaurants, uh, upscale, uh, they're 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 a dying breed, and, and, and statistically they're not working anymore. Um, millennials are looking for much more uh, experience type uh, places and places where they can have uh, pop up kinds of cuisines, you know, the, the things that come and things that go. And we're already getting some of that in the Cedar Valley, and it's, it's, it's wonderful to see. But the entertainment, food and beverage experience uh, 
uh, is changing just as rapidly as retail. And of course, retail is changing um, in a way that we never expected, but it's, it's, it's going away. And so people do 100% of their consuming online, or, or in, and soon, soon it will, will be 100%. The restaurant uh, experience is different. Uh, last year, for the first time ever, people spent more money in restaurants than they did at grocery stores. The gross sales of restaurants eclipsed the gross sales of grocery stores for the first time ever. Now, that means people are eating out a lot, a lot, a lot, and they're not eating at home. But that number has to now include uh, meals ready to go, delivered to your home. Uh, those become part of the restaurant experience, not of the grocery shopping experience. Uh, so so the, the very nature of buying a meal is changing, and, and really quickly. I'm excited to see where that goes. I believe that in the food and beverage business, what you'll see You'll, you'll see an end of the 10-year lease of a, of a restaurateur who runs uh, Brian's on 4th, for instance, forever. And more and more modular plug-in, plug-out restaurant concepts where almost like a food truck inside mm. where people say, gee, I'd sure like to have this ethnic cuisine. Let's do that and let it, let it run its course for 8 months to 12 months, maybe a year, you know, whatever. It, let's let it run its course. Then let's plug something else into that spot, and let's have another experience. I think that's the future of food and beverage. Lots of variety, lots of change. Uh, short attention spans, but exposure to every kind of uh, culinary experience. I think that's coming. I think that's next, even in small markets. What's next for you? As a as a as an entrepreneur, yeah, I'm at a crossroads uh, for sure. I love that I yeah. am catching you at the crossroads yeah. because that's that's yeah. a time when people reflect and yeah. have introspective thoughts. And I'm I'm at uh, I'm at a uh, an absolute uh, point of questioning. What are uh, you questioning? Oh gosh! So um, I work uh, third shift at the Isle Casino in Waterloo. And I'm not terribly good at it. Um, it's a job, and and I like the people that I work with, but it's certainly not going to be my life. I'm 62 years old, and I have some physical limitations, although not very many. Um, I'm still mentally very, very crisp. I wrote the book to help me answer your question. I wrote the book to get my bearings to find out where, where am I? Um, because as I mentioned earlier in our conversation, being lost is something that I wrote about a lot. And so the book was written uh, to help me figure out where I'm at on the map, what, you know, on the cosmic map, where, where, where do I stand, where do I sit? Um, and, and I've got some good answers um, I think that it's time that I do everything that I can now to shed some of the of the of the the brick and mortar life and focus on the cloud a bit and focus on uh, the more cerebral part of life, the more intellectual part of life. I want to focus more on writing and painting. Um, Interestingly enough, the things that I've done that have been artistic, I've always made more money at 
than my jobs. So I've always done better when I painted than when I went to work. So but is it possible that you're a mis mismatched painter? You're uh, a, a musician, but painting is your real talent that, that others question. appreciate? Excellent question, because if I ranked my gifts, yes. food is my f number one gift, and I don't like doing it at all. I have never enjoyed being a cook or a chef. I've never been passionate about it. I don't sit around in the kitchen and say, let's make this for each other, let's make that for each other. Uh, are you familiar with the, the notion of perfect pitch as a musician? Yeah, uh, you hit the perfect pitch. You hit the perfect note. They, so yeah. musicians are, are known to have perfect pitch. I do not have perfect pitch as a, music, a mu uh, musician. As a matter of fact, my ear training is quite poor and I have to work very hard to play by ear, to improvise, to be a musician. But what I wanted to be, my, my passion, what I would spend hours and hours and hours doing is playing music because that's what I wanted. So the least of my gifts was the greatest of my aspirations. I don't know how that works. Now, move on to uh, uh, painting. Painting is kind of in the middle. I was pretty good at painting the day I started. I've sold every painting I've ever made. I've never had trouble when I say, screw it, drop everything, I'm gonna paint. I do, that's where I live in the best zone. But I have a lot of trouble doing other things when I paint because it's, it's more time consuming, more labor uh, in, intensive. Uh, intensive. Yeah. And so I have to focus on it a bit more. Now we move on to, so we've got, we've got Food, which I, I have perfect pitch with flavor. Uh, my gift, my easiest thing of all, food. It's the thing I like to do the least. And painting lives right in the middle. And painting probably is the most pragmatic, uh, direct line to uh, comfortable retirement, is to just paint. Now, a couple of years ago, Facebook and social media offered a boon to people who wanted to paint and do uh, those kinds of things because there was a window of about five years where Facebook was the magic elixir, the holy grail of, of self-marketing. Advertisement. Yeah, and it's changed a lot. Um, you're, uh, and I'm not savvy enough to know what the new next greatest uh, social media trend will be, but and I've got to find it. But uh, while the uh, uh, Facebook train was up and running and working for self-promotion, it was the most uh, uh, completely uh, uh, different uh, thing that was available to anyone to self-promote. There had never been anything like it. I, you know, typical mass media, if you go back and kind of examine what worked, print media stopped working in terms of, uh, you know, a newspaper ad for a, for a restaurant stopped being very effective. Uh, radio ads were for people that wanted to hear their name on the radio, but they got you very little business. Billboards were effective, and then they stopped being effective. So every medium has run its course and become... Uh, whatever it is now um, and some of them get to enter a period of nostalgia where they become great again and that's wonderful but what's the next way to get your message out there the record industry has 
uh, completely changed from one kind of industry to another. There's no such thing as signing a major record label, uh, having a, a mega uh, gold platinum album, and then living off touring from that the rest of your life. You're much more likely to have to tour and sell right. your baseball hats. Right, but where, where do you fit in all this? Well, where I fit in all that is I've got to find where the next marketing tool lives. And you'll, uh, you'll be marketing what? Which part of your gifts will be marketing? Well, I'm, I'm going to make a. I'm going to make a. I'm going to finish the book process. Okay. So my plan. I've got, I've got a real clear plan for the book. I'm going to give away a lot of them uh, in e-copies. I'm going to try to get uh, some kind of a buzz about the book out there. Then I'm going to try to do a self-published PayPal you know, buy my book for me, sort of uh, an angle. And uh, my end game would then be to attract attention, eno enough attention to it, if it's good enough, and that will be determined. Uh, if there's merit there, if there's value there, then the dream and the thing that I'm going to try to manifest is I'm going to try to manifest somebody reading it that matters in terms of the publishing world and saying, hey, you know what? Let's publish this book. So, so that's the fantasy. So you really want a bestseller out of it? That's the fantasy. Absolutely. Okay, so that's yeah. the dream. I mean, it's great yeah. to dream, and you clearly are working. You have made the first step. The most important step is, is writing it. Right. Which yeah. it was much harder, by the way, to edit than to write. The writing process I did in a manic, frenetic way. Uh, I, have you ever watched a chef uh, carve an ice sculpture? I have, actually. Yeah, I, I cover quite a bit of, of uh, local events, local community events. Yeah. Which is where we met, by yes. the way, was at one of those events. Yes. So, um, it's I, looked at writing, it's crazy. I looked at writing my book very much like making an ice sculpture. Now, people will ask me as a chef, they'll say, how do you carve an ice swan? Well, it's very simple. You look for everything that's not a swan, and you cut it off. <laughs> you just carve it away. Well, I did the same thing with my book. I wrote uh, 120,000 uh, words, and in the editing process, I started with my literary chainsaw, and I started whacking off everything that wasn't my story. And so what I'm wound up with now are 92,000 words that are much truer to that ice one. If I recall, you told me earlier that the book is mostly biographical, but not exactly true to to all events. There right. is some. There is some. Fiction in it. So, right? so here's an, it, it's fictionalized from the extent of uh, how do I get from this point to that point when I don't know the answer? Well, I'll I'll create a bridge, mm -hmm. and that bridge, that transition, uh, may be uh, fictionalized. Mm -hmm. Fictionalized in the vein of my story. Uh, true to my character, certainly my character would have done that. But did I do it or not? I don't remember. I don't know. Have you have you gone back and reread re re the book? I know your daughter has read parts of it, but have you gone back and reread it now? Yes, but more interestingly, I sent copies of it to every person who's mentioned in the book. Now that's where the fun started. That's where the fun started because the reaction that people have to seeing themselves written into a book happens on many different levels. On one level, I have a friend named Alan who's in the book. And he read it from cover to cover and was very upset about a single line in the book. And the line in the book was, Alan was running his own business from inside the hotel. 
to him, it made him sound like he was doing something wrong, and that it was a like a criminal activity. And he took he took uh, uh, great objection to that line, that single line. Did you fix it? Well, yeah, it's, because it, it didn't it's not affect, exactly right. Right, it didn't affect, it didn't affect my story the storyline. Right, and I fixed it to a greater truth, which was Alan was running the sales department with a very entrepreneurial spirit and he might as well have been running his own business. Well, there's a huge difference between the yeah. two lines, clearly, right? Even right. Yeah. right? So basically, the, the denotative uh, stuff was still intact, but connotatively, it, it was a completely different line. It affected his story, it didn't affect mine. And right. it made him happier with the story. Mm -hmm. And nothing else bothered him from that point on. And I did a few rewrites based on his, he filled in some of those transitions that I made up. He actually filled in some blanks for me. That process repeated itself 20 or 25 times. And so the most current draft of the book, and there have been uh, 85, 85 rewrites of the book. I should tell, I should share this with my students who sometimes do not like to do a single rewrite. Mm. No, my book has been rewritten 85 times, uh, some of them uh, to uh, uh, a greater degree than I ever thought I would bother with, because it's work, rewriting is work. But when you go in, you take your chainsaw, you cut away everything that's not your story. That's not and the you, swan. And, and you got your swan, you look at it, and it's like, well, that's not, it's a swan, and I've, I've done it, a mission accomplished, but the swan doesn't have the correct proportions or dimensions mm -hmm. to be, uh, uh, it, 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 it's not aesthetically uh, correct and that's going to keep people from, from looking at it uh, because it's not, it, it, it's not, it's not uh, going to attract anyone's attention. So then that's what happened with the book is I cut it up into, the, into, the, into my story but from a literary, from a reader standpoint, I don't think it was enticing enough. It didn't draw you in enough. It, it needed more sizzle on the steak. So I went back through and uh, started asking people for their feedback and advice and, their, and, and questioning. And, and people would try to send me punctuation corrections. And it's like, no, no, I'm, I'm sorry. I'm not looking to, to, for punctuation. I'm looking for meat. I'm looking for uh, stuff to put on this this framework that I've that I've chopped up now, and people are super accommodating. There's another friend of mine who became very famous. His name is Mark Sissel, and Mark uh, is uh, Toby Keith's uh, manager. Um, he and I played in a band together for a couple of one-year stints. Much of the book, because that was my most formidable growing era was the time that I traveled with him in a band and he was very much a big brother and uh, and, I, and and he became my conscience for a while because I hadn't developed one of my own so I borrowed his for a bit <laughs> when he read the book he made comments like well this isn't exactly right that's not quite what happened but I like your memory of it better than mine let's keep that one on the other hand, this one isn't what happened. Let me tell you what happened. You can do with it as you will. And so the, the, uh, the largest number of words uh, in a rewrite came from my conversation and interview with Mark Sissel, my old and dear friend who I haven't talked to 
in 40 years. So really the book had quite a bit of a healing piece to it, the, the process itself. Right. But that healing process is extended out to the circle of people who are actually mentioned in it or who intersected that, that, that sphere at some point. People who flew in and out of my orbit um, have all been affected by it. The single uh, uh, most emotional um, impact, the single greatest effect, my brother read the book. And he's not a reader. He's, re he's read four books in his life, which is uh, four more books than I've ever read. I am not a reader. I have never read a book from cover to cover. My own book, I've read many times. I've never read another book. I, am, I don't know authors. I don't know styles. I, I completely approached this as a songwriter who was going to write a book. My brother read the book. It was not very flattering of my family or our life. He found it very important and maybe a bit healing himself. He sent it to his daughters. Now his daughters are sending me emails saying, Uncle Brian, we had no idea. My dad doesn't talk about any of this stuff. We didn't know. We knew you had a difficult childhood. We knew you've all had hard lives. We didn't realize. And we're sorry that we haven't seen you in years and that we've been estranged. So it has had a, it, prior to it ever being published or, or read in any kind of mass way, the book has had an impact greater than I could have ever hoped for. Even the free copy uh, plan, over 800 people have responded by email with feedback, having read the book from cover to cover. So I've got 800 readers who have completed the book that I know about already, who have taken the time to send that email and say, I read the book, here was my take on it, um, and, and overwhelmingly positive responses. But the, the, the theme of the responses is exactly the theme of the book. Boy, it's, it, it does get funnier, but it, it never gets pretty, and it doesn't seem to ever get really easy. I don't know if easy is a goal. Um, so, so I, I love the process because it's unlike most authors' processes, where mm -hmm. where they have a plan and they execute the plan daily, religiously, in a disciplined way, and and maybe one other person reads, and maybe an editor reads. Mm -hmm. So yours is more like a crowdsourcing of of sorts. That's right? a very good way to put it. Yeah, yeah, crowdsourcing the ideas and yeah. seeing what the group thinks and getting feedback and 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 changing it as you go along which may be a, a, a very um, dynamic way of doing things. Mm -hmm. um, the question is, when will it end? Mm -hmm. Because the, the three and 400,000 person that reads it, they may also have some feedback for you. So are you going to continue evolving the narrative? Yeah, it's, it's uh, uh, when I paint paintings, uh, when I sign the painting, it's finished. I may do some changes and some fixings and some fiddlings and, mm -hmm. and, and do some work. But the moment that I sign it, it's done. It's very easy for me to say I'm finished now because most of my life my art has been on a plate and it was consumed within 10 minutes. No matter how much work there was involved in creating the dish, 10 minutes later it was gone. It didn't exist. So I've been dealing with very uh, 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 temporary art my whole life. And even my paintings, they're, they're painted on, on repurposed wood uh, with remnant 
paints. Um, they're here and they're gone. People hang them outside and they, they die in the open air or they, uh, you know, they buy them so inexpensively that they're not exactly family heirlooms. So even my art is, is, is uh, kind of transient and temporary. As, as, as are we. As are we. Mm -hmm. As are we. Mateo, let me ask you, what, having read the book, which, which part or which story has stuck with you uh, I think the longest? The main story, I, I've always known that my dad had a rough childhood. He's talked about it a little bit. Not thorough because I, it's, it's hard to talk about. You know, it's understandable. But I think really knowing what his mom thought my grandmother had thought about it, the entire situation was really interesting because he had said multiple times in the book that she would like sleep talk or she'd like talk unconsciously saying like he didn't kill himself and um, Kathy was always my favorite, his sister. Um, and having these things that he's kind of revealed about his childhood and his, his relationship with his family and his siblings, I was really opened my eyes a little bit about like my perspective on my dad and our family and just how we all get along in general. Um, so, but yeah, so I think just the, our, our relationships with other people, my followers especially. As you were writing the book, were you thinking about your family as a reader, your daughter as a reader, or just your friends and, 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 and strangers as readers? I absolutely wrote the book to be read by the people closest to me. I wrote the book as a, a, it was a, a song, a poem, written to my family. It was written to them. It was not written for a mass audience. So in a way, it's also a tribute. Mm -hmm. Is that another way to look at it? Um, let's, let's, a confession? Let's, confession. Let's call it a confession. Okay. An apology. My book is so, <laughs> it is so uh, uh, honest. It's a, it's a confession, but it's also very much an apology. It's very much me trying to, uh, through uh, a lot of, of process, a lot of dialogue, it's me trying to say, yes, I did some things. I want you to understand why and how they happened. Would you change anything if you could? About my life? Yes. Why, everything, but nothing. Um, on one level, you look, well, I'd sure like to have made that decision differently. I'd sure like to have done that differently and that differently. But isn't it interesting? All the three of us have had, uh, sitting in this table, we've all had three completely different lives. Yeah. And your life has been rich and full of <coughs> wonder and splendor. And here you are, sitting at this moment in time, at this table, the same place I am with me, by choice, on a Sunday afternoon. On a Sunday afternoon, Super right, Bowl. Right before Sunday. the Super Bowl, right? Yeah. But, but here we are, and there's no place that I would rather be Me too. at this moment, Me too. at this time. There's nothing I would do better or different. So I think that's the real answer to the question, is are you able to enjoy the moment in spite of regrets and choices and things that in spite of things you could edit out of your life, which you, you can't edit your life, in spite of those things, can you take that second and enjoy it? And I can. I clearly can. I do it every day. When I go to work and I'm in my car listening to my favorite songs on IPR, 
and uh, they play something I've never heard before and I get exposed to a new piece of music, I'm as happy as I've ever been in my life, including when my child was born, when, when, when I fell in love. At that moment, I am absolutely immersed in basking in joy. This program is about people's and people's passions and their pursuits and their purpose. Moving forward, do, what do you think is your purpose? You know, I, I really hope um, that I get some traction with the book because I've got more to say. I've got a lot more to say. Is there and, another book in the works? Is yeah, I've already started another book. Yeah. I've already started another book. My, when I talked to my daughter and told her I was going to write a book, um, I asked her what kind of book I should write next because I was going to immediately start a second book because um, in the absence of having another project, I felt like I would go through a sort of with withdrawal or a remorse over having, you know, kind of like, a, a, what do you call it when a mom, postpartum depression? Uh, depression. Yeah. Yeah. I didn't want to experience that. That didn't sound fun at all. So I, I, I thought, well, I'll just, uh, I'll just, I'll get pregnant again. Yeah. So uh, I started another book immediately. And, and uh, it is about? It's, it's science fiction. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's going to be science fiction. That's amazing. Yeah. yeah. So you, you're starting from a bio slash fiction to jumping right into science yeah, fiction. Yeah, and, and the reason science fiction is because I've always had a, a, a deep curiosity about uh, quantum physics and, and that realm. And my son um, is uh, completely, uh, I mean, he's a, he's a quantum physics nerd. He just loves this stuff. And he'll be a great resource for me. Um, but what I want to write is a very simple story uh, that that is uh, wrapped in some some quantum notions, um, but it's not the crux of the story. The, the The story is the story. Let's put some spice on that story with just a little bit of music that that you will quickly play for us. Well, I just happen to have a guitar sitting right here. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and our okay. friend Mathe will be helping us a little bit with the guitar. All right, this this song. We only have time for one song. Yeah, yeah. I'll just make it real quick. This song is the true story of my second wives, the daughter of my mother's, my older daughters. This is the daughter of my mother's, uh, or the mother of my daughter's uh, great great uncle who died of a scratch in the Civil War. going out on this song and I hope you enjoy the program. Join me next time right here on this assignment with Anelia where there is no editing and people and purposes are our, our goal. Thanks for listening. A stone's throw from the battlefield on a road deeply rutted by cannon of steel. By the church on Gaines's mill, the fight broke out, it is fighting still. Smell the sulfur, smell the smoke. Muskets crack and the bones are broke. Lying in nurse's tent with the sorely wounded of my regiment. Beside me lie a boy named Will, hot with fever, he's so very ill. The nurse pulls out a pocket testament, she begins to read out loud. Will is dead, he's not with the Lord. 
Now she melts into a flood of tears. She drops to her knees to the Lord she fears. And now I mourn a Virginia boy. He's not old enough to shave. So keep your head low and your powder dry. Won't you think of sweet milk and biscuits? A Jessup girl and a hot bath and a ride on the Central Typhoid, the northern boys, the cold is all out to get you. No Virginia grave is going to bear my name on this day. There's wow. A, there's a verse in Wow. Again, thanks for listening. Join me next time right here on This Assignment with Anelia. <laughs>